0: Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the Global Church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is called, How Shall I Die? It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, February 25th, 2018. Scott, Alyssa, Martin, Nicholas, Aaron, Jaime, Christopher, Luke, Kara, Gina, Joaquin, Elena, Meadow, Helena, Alex, Carmen, Peter. These are the names of the 17 people, 14 students and three faculty members, who died in a mass shooting this week at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. Alyssa, 14 years old, was a star soccer player. Cara loved the beach. People often spelled Joaquin's name wrong, so he had a snappy nickname, Guac. Meadow worked after school at a motorcycle repair business. Scott and Aaron, both faculty members, died to protect their students. According to the New York Times, three of the deadliest mass shootings in modern U.S. history have occurred in the last five months. Since the Sandy Hook shooting of 2012, over 1,800 people have died and close to 6,500 others have been wounded in 1,600 mass shootings across the country. Right now, Americans own over 300 million guns, roughly one for every citizen. Every time another mass shooting hits the headlines, we gather as a nation, over social media, at memorial services and vigils, in the halls of Congress and the White House, and to offer the victims and their families our thoughts and prayers. And then life goes on, until the next shooting. During weeks like this one, I find it hard, honestly, to focus on the lectionary. I struggle to keep trusting that the ancient words we hold up as sacred actually matter in the real world. But then I recall what Peter, in a rare moment of insight and clarity, said to Jesus 2,000 years ago, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. In this week's Gospel reading from St. Mark, Jesus predicts his death for the first time. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering, Jesus tells his disciples quite plainly. He must be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. Standing on this side of resurrection history, we too easily miss the bombshell effect these words must have had on Jesus' disciples. Their great hope, cultivated over the three years they had followed Jesus, was that he would lead them in a military revolution and overthrow their Roman oppressors. After all, they had seen his miracles and witnessed firsthand his charismatic ability to draw huge crowds. They had heard him proclaim loud and clear the arrival of a new kingdom. He was their longed-for future, their cherished dream. So what could be more disorienting, more ludicrous than the news that their would-be champion was determined to walk straight into a death trap, to surrender without a fight to a common criminal's death? You know the rest of the story. Peter, in a more typical moment of mock bumbling, scolds Jesus for his macabre prediction. And Jesus, in what might be the sharpest and most surprising rebuke in Scripture, puts Peter in his place with one swift stroke. Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Then Jesus turns to the crowds and captures the essence of his message in two sentences. If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake, and for the sake of the gospel, will save it. I don't know about you, but I can relate very well to Peter's unease about this hard, hard teaching. Even now, centuries removed from the context in which Jesus lived and taught, I shiver as I consider the implications of his words. What exactly was he saying? That he wants us to pursue suffering and death? That a holy life is not about living at all, but about dying? About martyrdom? One temptation is to minimize... I'll give up chocolate for Lent, I say, or deny myself Facebook and YouTube for a few weeks. I'll pray more, study more, tithe more, volunteer more. All good and necessary things, no doubt. But not, I think, what Jesus meant when he invited the crowds to lose their lives for the sake of the gospel. Not what he rebuked in the strongest possible terms when Peter tried to replace Jesus' cross with a shortcut. The other temptation is to maximize in the wrong direction. To become, as the expression goes, so heavenly-minded that we're no earthly good. This is the kind of self-denial that strips life of all pleasure, all embodiment, all celebration, all joy. The single-mindedness that reduces the world to a grim mission field, a landscape to conquer with an earnest but ultimately loveless zeal. It is a dangerous kind of self-denial that encourages people to stay in abusive relationships and perpetuate their own victimhood. I don't believe that this is what Jesus meant either. I can't recognize it in the Jesus who frolicked with children, the Jesus who turned water into wine, the Jesus who advocated for the widow, the orphan, the prisoner, the outcast. So what then? What does it mean to deny myself? Living as I do in a culture that doesn't imprison, torture, or kill Christians for our faith, how shall I deny myself so that the gospel might thrive here and now? How shall I save my life by losing it for Jesus' sake in 21st century America? How shall I die? This week, I've asked myself these questions in light of the tragedy in Florida, and I've been struck hard by one realization— I live in such crippling fear of suffering and death that I use up a huge amount of my mental, spiritual, and physical energy each day, trying to stave off both. To be fair, contemporary Western culture encourages me to do this. What would Jesus say, I wonder, to the multi-million dollar industries that invite me to deny my mortality through cosmetics, fashion, leisure, sex, entertainment, real estate, sports cars, weight loss, beauty? What would he say to a culture that glorifies violence but cheapens death? What would he say to my own frightened heart that prioritizes self-protection over so much else that matters in this life? What if Jesus call is for us to stop clutching at this life so desperately? To step out of the vicious cycles of denial, acquisition, terror, and violence that seek to cheat death, but in fact rob us of the abundant life Jesus came to give us? What, after all, does a citizenry that owns 300 million guns have to say about fear? About enslavement to fear? What would it look like in this time and place to lay down our fears that others might live? To willingly set aside our own interests and, dare I say it, our own rights, so that we could prioritize what Jesus called the Great Commandments, to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. I started this essay with the names of those who died in Florida this week. I'm ashamed to admit that I had to force myself to look up the names and stories when news of the shooting went viral on Wednesday afternoon. My first reaction, after maybe five seconds of horror, was numbness. As in, been there, done that. As in, nothing I feel makes any difference anyway, so why bother? As in, I just can't take it in anymore, it's too painful. That's when I realized how urgently I needed to look up these precious people's names and linger over the details of their cut-off lives, how much I needed to fight against a lethargy born of terror and despair. To take up a cross as Jesus did is to stand always in the hot, white center of the world's pain, not just to glance in the general direction of suffering and then sidle away, but to dwell there, to identify ourselves wholly with those who are aching, weeping, screaming, and dying. Taking up the cross means recognizing... Christ crucified in every suffering body and soul that surrounds us, and pouring our energies and our lives into alleviating that pain no matter what it costs us. In the case of our American epidemic of gun violence, it means moving beyond the band-aid approach of thoughts and prayers, and deciding as a church, as Jesus' body on earth, as Christians committed to peace, justice, and human flourishing, that we will not tolerate this desecration of life in our schools and our cities anymore. How shall I die? accepting against all the lies of my culture that I will die, and trusting in Jesus' assurance that I will also rise again, how shall I spend this life? Shall I hoard it in fear or give it away in freedom? Shall I protect myself with numbness and apathy or experience the abundant life Jesus offers to those who ache, weep, and bleed alongside the world's suffering? This is the question I'm asking in my Lenten wilderness. How shall I die? For books this week, Dan reviews Building a Bridge by James Martin. After a gunman murdered 49 people at a nightclub in Orlando in the summer of 2016, the Jesuit priest James Martin was deeply disappointed that very few of the Catholic Church's 250-plus bishops actually used the words gay or LGBT in expressing their grief and horror. Some even remained silent. Martin says that he found his experience to be revelatory. Around the same time, a gay advocacy group called New Ways Ministry honored Martin for his 30 years of ministry to their communities with their bridge-building award, and thus his talks to that ceremony formed the genesis for the short but powerful book. As Martin cautious, cautions several times, we need to be careful about making generalizations about any community. Nonetheless, it's clear to him that many gays still feel very much unwelcomed, excluded, insulted, and slandered by the Catholic Church hierarchy. Martin hopes to build a two-way bridge between the two groups. He does this by appealing to the Catechism of the Catholic Church that calls all its people to treat one another with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. It furthermore and explicitly calls people to refrain from what it calls unjust discrimination. In the first part of the book, Martin explores what these three virtues might mean for the Catholic Church and how it treats LGBT people. He then asks the same question for gays. What might these virtues mean for them in their encounters with the Catholic hierarchy? In the final part of the book, Martin offers ten biblical passages for meditation, followed by questions for further reflection. The book concludes with a prayer for when I feel rejected. Dan found Martin's anecdotes based upon his many ministry experiences among both groups to be especially helpful. After this book was published, as one might expect, Martin was criticized by some for going too far and too fast, and by others for his sort of patient gradualism. That sort of debate, I recall, also plagued the civil rights movement. At a minimum, perhaps it's not too much to ask. Let's treat one another with respect, compassion, and sensitivity. For movies this week, Dan reviews Tangerine. This indie dark comedy by director Sean Baker debuted at Sundance and has a remarkable backstory that makes it worth watching in and of itself. The movie was shot entirely on three iPhone 5s, on a budget of $100,000, in a period of just three weeks, December 2013 to January 2014. In addition, the film features two transgender actresses, Maya Taylor and Kitana Kiki Rodriguez, neither neither of whom had significant acting experience before this movie. The plot of this dramatic comedy is simple, but the human stories are complex. When a transgender sex worker named Cindy Rella gets out of a month-long prison sentence, she meets her best friend and fellow trans sex worker Alexandra, who lets slip that her boyfriend and pimp Chester has been cheating on her, with a real girl, who's white. Got that? So the chase is on to find Chester and the offending Dina. This is a deep dive into an L.A. subculture that most of us will never know, but it nonetheless taps into universally human emotions that are at once tender, sordid, hilarious, and heartbreaking. It's interesting to compare this earlier movie by Baker with his recent effort called The Florida Project. And finally, for poetry, for the second week of Lent, we offer Prayer for Overcoming Indifference by Kayim Stern. For the sin of silence, for the sin of indifference, for the secret complicity of the neutral, for the closing of borders, for the washing of hands, for the crime of indifference, for the sin of silence, for the closing of borders for all that was done, for all that was not done. Let there be no forgetfulness before the throne of glory. Let there be remembrance within the human heart. And let there at last be forgiveness when your children, O God, are free and at peace. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, February 25th, 2018. I'm Debbie Thomas.